You're listening to Monocle on Saturday, first broadcast on the 4th of June 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello there, I'm Emma Nelson and a very warm welcome to the weekend. This is Monocle on Saturday, coming to you live from Midori House in the heart of London. Coming up, we'll be crossing to Paris to get the latest following the Monocle Quality of Life conference and the journalist Andrew Walker will be joining me in the studio to go through the day's newspapers for us. And Andrew Muller will be here to fill in the news gaps from the last seven days. We have learned that the UK is maybe six months away from a push to abolish decimal currency and restore farthings, florins, shillings and guineas. Or, if Boris Johnson is really floundering by then, groats. That's all coming up on Monocle on Saturday, live on Monocle 24. And a very warm welcome to your Saturday. It's me, Emma Nelson here. And let's have a quick look at the um, headlines before we start the programme in uh, in detail. An investigation has begun after at least four people were killed when a train derailed in Germany's southeastern state of Bavaria. At least 30 people were injured where three carriages came off the tracks near Garmisch-Partenkirchen. A former senior White House aide has been charged with contempt of Congress for refusing to cooperate with the inquiry into last year's US Capitol riot. Peter Navarro was arrested after defying a legal summons from the Congressional Committee investigating the attack. And Japan has recorded a record low number of births last year, prompting the biggest natural decline in the population in the country's history. Government data shows an overall drop of 628,000 people. Japan has one of the fastest ageing populations on earth. Well, that's a quick look at the headlines. Let's head straight to Paris, however, now, with the monocle gang are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, I am reliably informed, and enjoying breakfast. It's the morning after the Quality of Life conference in the French capital, but there is a full morning ahead to be savoured. Sophie Grove, editor of Confect and host of Confect Corner here on Monocle 24, is there for us, alongside friend of Monocle and regular voice Gillian Debias. Good morning. Good morning. Bonjour, Emma. How are you doing? (laughs) Well, well, the conference was was quite astonishingly fun, but then the party was possibly just a kind of cathartic and and, and quite expressive sort of dance floor last night until quite late. So we're we're feeling good. But we're also feeling like we need our coffee. <laughs> but, but miraculously, uh, the, the, the clouds have parted here in Paris. And uh, I'm looking up and there's a beautiful blue sky. And we're in the courtyard of the Musée Carnavalet with gorgeous croissant and fresh orange juice and coffee. So we're feeling quite, quite bright now and ready to embrace a morning uh, in Paris with more conversation. Indeed. I mean, you couldn't do better than the Musée Carnavalet. It's in the middle of the Marais. It's the perfect setting to... Uh, slightly reemerge from a from a big day, and there's a lovely day ahead of exploring the city as well. I mean, if you're if you're in the heart of the Marais, you can do this on foot. Off you go. Uh, but what is on the cards for you today, apart from taking gentle steps, by the sounds of it, at least? So I'm going to join a tour which is going to be led by Dora Molnar, who is an amazing um, sort of interiors expert and sort of antiques collector and consultant. Um, she's going to take us around some of the neighbourhoods, uh, sort of of the Bastille, um, and we're going to go to some workshops 
you know, sort of wonderful um, framers, fixers, upholsterers. And apparently this was the area which was kind of a hotbed of revolution, um, just, you know, actually in the 18th century. But it really has consistently sort of remained a home for all of these amazing makers. So that's going to be a wonderful little little tour now that the sun's come out. Well, I was excited by my tour, but I'm a little envious of yours. Um, I'm going to be uh, hosting a tour that's led by uh, the architect Franklin Aziz. Uh, it's a really interesting Paris regeneration story. The Tour Montparnasse, when it was built, was this very tall, black, ugly skyscraper, which was loathed by Parisians. And the city of Paris decided to do a competition to kind of with some of the France's best architects to reimagine the building, to make it um, lively and loved by Parisians. And uh, it's really quite inventive. And the architect who has his office in the building, which isn't going to reopen to the public until t uh, 2024, is going to show us all the sketches and talk through the concepts about how this building's going to have gardens and panoramic terraces and, and music spaces. Um, which I think will be uh, a really interesting inside, behind the scenes look at a kind of building in Paris. It will be. It's an astonishingly, uh, it's an astonishing anomaly on the French skyline, isn't it? Just in the south of the city. Um, I was a receptionist in a in a previous life in the uh, in the Tour Montparnasse, and it was an about the vision for it. Emma. It was a cold, hard place to work. It really was. It wasn't great fun, and you would step out of it into a, a Paris that was incredibly welcoming and normal and and reassuring and. And, and one always wondered how that how that building ever got built. So it's it's a delight to hear that something a little a softer around the edges is going to is, is it awaits us all with the reimagining of it. I think it has been so many years in the making because when I was living here, I interviewed Franklin about this project and even sort of conceiving the reimagination of, of the of the tower was a huge deal for Paris and they had to come up with a kind of conglomeration of different architects of him he's leading. But it's it as you say, Emma, it's like actually it's a testament to how wonderful Paris is that you when you get to the kind of ground floor area around the Montparnasse you realise it's chilly, windy, <laughs> kind of inhospitable. And actually what Franklin I think you'll find they've been working so hard on how that street facing element is going to change so that we don't have that wind tunnel and that feeling of kind of like I don't know <laughs> wilderness, concrete jungle. And um, so it would be great to see that happening. Tell us Sophie, yeah. you ho you hosted a panel yesterday. Tell us what were you talking about? So I hosted two panels. One of them was very, very, um, well, it was close to our hearts. It was, it was the, the CEO of Le Monde, um, Louis Dreyfus, and, and Christine Aprent talking about media in, in France and the unique French view, but also the kind of wonderful um, renaissance that some of the papers are having, especially under the leadership of, of Louis Dreyfus at Le Monde. Um, and sort of, then I hosted sort of light, later in the day, sort of post-lunch, uh, a piece, a rather kind of fiery panel about the future of retail. And it turned into a kind of rallying cry for um, sort of, I think it was called Retail Resistance. Randam um, Tuhame, who's, who's one of the founders of, of Bouli, the, the pharmacy, really took to the, to the floor and, and he was bashing the table quite a lot. <laughs> anyway, people were at least very engaged that's all I can say um, and lots of good points were made and Gillian you've been sucking up the atmosphere at the, the, the conference highlights for you 
Uh, well, I um, I love the uh, discussion with Ben Soames from Air France and looking at the reimagining of an iconic national car uh, carrier. And uh, the highlight of that re was really the uh, a bit of an unveiling of their new commercial, which is one of the most exquisite uh, pieces of uh, Parisian iconography and cinema. And it was really quite emotional, but it's really how, how Air France is trying to reposition itself as a, as a carrier of excellence, of luxury, premiumness, but really playing on everything that is quintessentially French. Um, and uh, Julian is actually swooning. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a, well, I swooned when I saw the video, the, the advert itself, which is um, a woman, a very elegantly dressed woman in a red dress, running through Paris. And the more, the further into the the film you get, the more you realise that attached to the end of her dress is this incredibly long red, sort of a fluid train, which she then, without pausing to catch her breath she runs up the Eiffel Tower I mean goodness knows how she's managed to do that barefoot and then she ends up at the top of the Eiffel Tower and the, the beautiful red um, drape which has followed her and has, has snaked elegantly all the way up the tower turns and into the little swoosh of the Air France who doesn't want to book a flight immediately, first-class Air France, after watching that? Yeah, absolutely, and to know who her personal trainer is. It's incredibly elegant. <laughs> um, <clears throat> ladies, we're, we're going to have to ask you about what happened last night, because in front of me is Andrew Walker, the, the economic journalist, and we're going to be examining a story in the FT weekend about bosses raising a glass to a return of the summer party. Um, am I right in saying that you did that quite successfully yesterday evening? We did. We, we, we went to La Coupole in Montparnasse, actually, um, and we had this wonderful grand dinner. Um, uh, and then we danced. There's an actual, almost like an art, art deco club beneath La Coupole, which I'm told is quite a tango hotspot when we're not there. But um, it really, I mean, it's so wonderful to get together with all the delegates, um, speakers. I just, there's an image of the architect, um, eminent architect, uh, Lina Gottme on the dance floor, just absolutely twirling in her and um, please, please, I, I will not forget. And it's just nice to see everyone coming together and that sense of celebration that is completely physical without kind of, we did so much talking and it was amazing and an intellectual kind of marathon in some ways. And then we just kind of just let it all out on the dance floor. Wonderful. <laughs> so, well, I wish... That's a confession. <laughs> <laughs> I won't ask you what time you were wearing out your shoe leather to, but I'm going to let you get on with your morning. Gillian Tobias and Sophie Grove, thank you so much for joining us on the line from the Musée Carnavale in Paris to round off a brilliant quality of life con uh, conference in the French capital. Now, as I said, joining me for a look at today's papers, the financial journalist Andrew Walker is here. Hi, Emma. Well, I'm imagining, were you cutting... Were you cutting up some rug last night in in, in London in, in in celebration of the jubilee, or, or was all well, the party I, in Paris? I, I managed I managed a short visit to the to the pub after I went out for a walk. But my, my street <laughs> is actually having a party this afternoon, so I'll be I'll be joining in that. Bunting. Punting. Bunting. Bunting. Um, I don't know. There isn't any out yet. But, right. Um, We've been given There'll certainly be some people and some food. We've, we're, we're in, around our way, we're embroiled in a rather politically charged argument about a marquee and whether we should sing God Save the Queen. It's all gone a little bit bananas. Yeah, I mean, I think my part of North London has quite a strong Republican streak to right. it. But, um, but it's not going to stop, stop us um, 
I mean, it, it, whatever you think about that, it's a good occasion, I think, for it's, people to to get together, you're quite, get to know the neighbours. You're quite right, actually. That that you know, I think lots of people. I've heard the sentence starting off with, "I'm a Republican," but yeah, yeah, absolutely. Today, this yeah, week, yeah, yeah. it's been one of those things yeah. that we actually realise that, um, regardless as to what your, mm-hmm. you know, how you came to this weekend, yeah. Um, it's just wonderful to see no, someone who has been so good at her job mm-hmm. for, the, for for seven decades. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think there are a lot of Republicans who would share that view um, and probably also recognise that their case is significantly weakened by her record. Um, in you know, in that in that respect, I think monarchists have had a very lucky seventy years. Mm. Not all have um, have performed the way she has, and we're not actually. Well, and we won't see another seventy year reign for a very very long time no, no, because if we're handing to Prince Charles, indeed. he's already in his seventies. Indeed, his that would make him one hundred and forty. That would make him one hundred. And healthcare is great. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, it's not quite not there, there not yet. yet. No, um, you know, maybe a little sort of like little Prince George. This yeah. Little Prince George is looking at um, looking at the at the prospect of quite a well, long indeed. innings. Um, yeah. yeah, but I mean, let's. Have a look at the the, the the way that the papers have covered the jubilee in the last couple of days. Before we go into the other stuff that, yeah. that I know you want to talk about this morning, um, it's it's sort of divided into three narratives, isn't it? That we have the 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 fact that we have the steadfast nature of the Queen, but she is absent at the key yeah um, key uh, church service yesterday at St Paul's Cathedral. We then have the the secondary, slightly slippery narrative of Meghan and Harry, yeah, yeah. and where that places the royals' position mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. on the stage, the soft power risks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then we have this incredible booing of a prime minister walking up the mm-hmm. steps to a royal service in front of arguably a safe crowd. It, it, yeah, it depends the on conservative which... prime minister in front of a a very monarchist crowd. Indeed, I mean, I suppose for the sake of balance, one should say that there may have been some cheering. Certainly, some people are reporting that. But um, I don't think it was the reception overall that he was anticipating. No, it wasn't. So tell us what you found about the, the Jubilee, what's caught your eye in the papers. Um, well, you know, you talk about the I'm a Republican but kind of thing. It's really quite striking, the very extensive coverage, even in The Guardian, you know, a paper that is very strongly of a Republican instinct itself. It's been, it's been, um, it's been you know... It, it, it doesn't seem to me that it's been um, been pushing that kind of agenda. There are individual columnists who have been casting a little bit of a little bit of a shadow over 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 things from time to time. But but it's it's basically I, I think the the paper has recognised that the um, that, that 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 it's something that for the great majority of the British population it's something that that, that they they really want to get into in a big way. And when you're looking at the way that the rest of the world has covered this, mm-hmm. um, in the last 24 hours we've seen every major newspaper in the world. I mean, even you know, looking at the Wall Street Journal's yeah, yeah. front page, yeah. it has a picture of the Queen. Mm. It is one of those events which which couldn't come at a more welcome moment when we're looking at what's happening in Ukraine, a mm-hmm. hundred days of war being yeah. marked. And then everybody is saying, well, let's put a picture of the Queen on the front page. And yeah. it lifts the spirits. Yes, it does. Um, I mean, it is very striking. She, I mean, this, this popularity she has here um, is mirrored internationally. Um, 
great enthusiasm for um, for this this great iconic figure. That doesn't you know you do see a little bit of um, uh, of the other side. Um, I was struck by a piece in the in the Irish Times, um, which wasn't in any way trying to um, trying to undermine this extraordinary reputation and record that she has. It was just raising the question: Is it perhaps now time for her to retire? Um, their London editor has given a, a, a long interview. It's actually available as a as a podcast rather than as a, a written article, um, arguing that you know the same thing would be for her to to put her feet. Up definitively now. Although you, know, I mean, you mentioned her, um, I, mean, I mean, she does seem to be doing that to, to some extent, and richly earned it is, I'm sure. You mentioned her not being present at, um, at many of the festivities. I think some people would regard as even more remarkable the fact that she's not going to be at the horse racing later on today. I mean, she is. Uh, she was. She must be really ill. <laughs> she must. She must be really tired. Let's say. I mean, you yes. remember earlier on this year, she missed the state opening of Parliament, but did manage to get to the races later on mm. that week. Mm, it's incredible, right? And you know, she, you know, it, it, it's a great love of hers, and of course, she's entitled to to make the most she can of it. I believe she is going to be watching the the racing on the on television. I mean, to talk about that on the Irish Times today about whether there should be retirement. I wonder whether the editor of the Irish Times is just about to get a knock on the door for, by someone from the Tower. <laughs> Maybe yes, not today. Um, okay, let's have a look at some of the other papers. You yeah. mentioned uh, you want to talk about something that's in Le Mans, don't you? About the fact that we have the the, the elections for the um, National Assembly start next week. That's right. Yeah. They have what five hundred and seventy-seven parliamentarians mm. have to be elected. There mm. is this tussle, isn't there, yeah. between um, uh, Emmanuel Macron, his freshly min- yeah. re-minted Renaissance Party, yeah. and then Jean-Luc Mélenchon narrowly missing getting through to the second yeah, round indeed. of the of the presidential elections making an awful lot of noise we don't know exactly yeah. how much noise he's going to make though is, is it well, going indeed. to be enough and and one of the the specific story that, that um the that Le Monde have been running is the um I mean, although as, as you say the the voting proper if you like in in France in person starts uh, the first round is next weekend um they have already started the um, online voting for French citizens abroad, and that has been plagued with all kinds of technical problems. Um, people having to get codes that they need to enter, and the codes not being delivered, and the whole thing um, just, uh, just just not really working as smoothly as it should. And um, Mr. Mélenchon, yes, has been raising some concerns about that. He's already flagging up the idea that, um, I mean, the, 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 according to the Le Monde article, the numbers of, of people actually managing to get their vote ahead of a deadline um, have been very, very low. And Mr Mélenchon is raising this concern about whether, you know, whether it's really going to be a proper fair vote on that basis. Which is funny, isn't it? Because we, we were discussing this a little bit earlier on it, at this this week, that we have, looking up the American midterms coming up, mm-hmm. the the, the Politico had found this astonishing story where Republican campaigners had decided that they were going to plant Republicans as poll monitors mm-hmm. or poll workers inside areas where there was a, there's likely to be a Democratic majority in the yeah. in the in the midterms, and they would have a hotline mm-hmm. via a chat yeah. or a phone call to a lawyer, mm-hmm. so that they could start to cast doubts over yeah. the veracity and the reliability of it. And I suddenly thought, well, hang on a minute. When we looked in the elections in France in in, in April, mm-hmm. there was no sign that Marine Le Pen was cl- crying no. foul no, over no, no, things. No. She, there was an acceptance of the democratic process. Yeah. 
And you're saying here, though, that well, there's a sort of like, is this a fair vote? It, you know, the, well, bubbles up. Bear in mind that I mean, I don't. There's, there's no suggestion here that I'm, I've seen of Mr. Mélenchon casting you know, d- any doubt on what's happening with the in-person voting in France. Um, but if these, you know, if if, if the, the figures are are right, then it does seem that um, that that. French citizens abroad have got a bit of a grievance. I wouldn't... I don't see any sign of this sort of mushrooming, developing into the kind of scale of an issue that we have that we have seen in the United States. Well, let's stay in the United States for an article about um, how... It's about the, uh, the, the Congress, the riots at, uh, on Capitol Hill. Yeah. Um, uh, concerns about Mike Pence's yeah. safety. Well, a couple of, couple of stories there. Um, so, yes... Uh, um, you may remember that, that Mike Prince was pressed by um, by then President Trump to um, not, to, as he was v- vice president, therefore um, president of the Senate, was pressed not to certify the electoral college votes um, of of some states. Um, a, a decision that Mr. Trump. Uh, uh, proposal that Mr. Trump saw as being a way to retaining the presidency for himself. Well, there is now some evidence, the reports in the New York Times, that um, that Mike Pence's uh, chief of staff had expressed some concern about his physical safety as it became clear that there was this breakdown in relations between between the president's office and the vice president's office. Um, and he called in a, a senior security official to to express his concerns. And, you know, th- there were people um, in the in the 6th of January um, invasion of Congress using slogans like hang Mike Pence. So, you know, you can understand the concerns were there, but it is quite striking a, an investigation uh, by by one by the journalist writing in the New York Times has you know, found that there's evidence that that concern was ex- was specifically shared by the vice president's office. And uh, let's look as well at uh, the fact that Peter Navarro has just appeared in court. Yeah, yeah, and he's been charged um, with. Um, uh, uh, over his uh, for contempt of Congress for um, not providing documents and um, um, and other other evidence in relation to the congressional investigation into those events. Um, I mean, at this stage, it is just charges. Um, it's been before a grand jury, um, but. You know, there is in theory the possibility of a prison sentence if he does ultimately um, get found guilty of these charges. Finally, let's have a look at the story in the Financial Times. Um, we were enjoying the aftermath of a party from Paris a few minutes ago yeah, with our gang from Monaco. Um, I love the fact that they sort of sounded so committed, but they needed a bit of warming up. Did well, Gillian and entirely <laughs> surprising, is it? Gillian and Sophie having uh, cut the rug and really, really just gone to town on the dance floor. Um, the the FT does have this lovely this article, doesn't it? Bosses raise a glass to yeah. the return of the summer party. Um, there are examples of people being told to go to an enchanted woodland. Frankly, if you asked me to go to an enchanted yeah, yeah. woodland as part of a, um, a, a, yeah. a party, I would wonder. Well, indeed, yeah. Um, but there's the idea that um, you know hospitality is doing incredibly well as a result, um, and also the idea of people coming back together in a positive way. Yes, yeah, so, I mean the hospitality industry, of course, was absolutely devastated by the pandemic. So, um, so coming back in a big way is something they really do badly need. Um, so, I mean, there are a couple of things going on here. One is just a bit of it is about getting back to normal, starting to do again the kind of um, corporate bonding events, if you like, that that happened before. But bear in mind, a lot of businesses 
aren't going back to full in-person, in-the-office working. So, you know, we have this hybrid working that many businesses are um, are following with people working from home quite a lot. And so that perhaps means that, and this does seem to come across in the article, there's an additional um, benefit for businesses to be had from having these kind of big office parties in that it, 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 it replicates some of what you're missing by having people perhaps coming in only only a few days a week. Um, there are some corporate, um, there are some, some people quoted in the article, they're saying, people in the hospitality business saying bookings are now getting back to or even above pre-pandemic levels. And that's certainly the view of um, somebody, uh, the chief executive of a firm called Swingers. And before anybody gets the wrong idea about what mm. that is, it's indoor golf venues. Yes. So, so don't worry about that. Yes. <laughs> There's also the Lime House venue, Lime venue portfolio. They manage the huge places, Cheltenham Race Course, Somerset House and Tottenham mm. Hotspur Stadium. And there's a big, you know, big no, ticket venue. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really clever way. It's the carrot versus the stick approach of getting people back together, isn't it? I yeah. mean, we've seen yeah. Elon Musk um, this week. Yeah. Um, he's he's been mouthing off goodness knows what. He's been talking about how he's he was terrified of the not terrified, but I think he's he's got bad feelings about the state of the economy. Yes. And he wants and everybody, he wants everybody, back everybody in. in five days a week. If you're yes. not in five days a week, yeah. forty hours a week, then you're out. Mm-hmm. Would that make me want to work for Elon Musk? Or no, was someone saying, would you like to come to a nice party and you'll all get together yeah, yeah. and you'll all remember how much you yeah. enjoyed working together? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's an important, important thing. Mm-hmm. OK. Andrew, thank you so much My for pleasure. joining us in the studio. That uh, was the financial journalist, Andrew Walker. Finally, let's hear from another Andrew on today's episode of Monocle on Saturday. It's time to find out what we didn't know seven days ago. Here's Andrew Muller with What We Learned. We learned this week of a definitive resolution to an Anglo-Australian rivalry almost as long and as hotly contested as the Ashes. This is the vicious sniping traded between hemispheres over the relative merits of each nation's preferred yeast extract spread. The British prefer Marmite, unless they don't. Indeed, in the British idiom of English, Marmite has become an adjective describing something one either adores or detests. Australians, on the other hand, suffer no such doubt about Vegemite, which everyone thinks, correctly, is great, which is why it is mentioned in a big pop hit and Marmite isn't. As if the jury was not in far enough, we learned that the jury had come in still further, if that's a thing juries can do, with the news that the City of Melbourne's council had decided to declare the smell of Vegemite wafting from the factory at one Vegemite Way, the actual address, a thing of significant cultural heritage. As we would submit, is this. We also learned, though this is a pretty niche lesson, that there is no graceful means of segueing out of a bit on Vegemite into a bit on Russia's accelerating descent into lunacy, so we're just going for it. Ouch. We learned that Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has been making hypothetical comparisons again. 
We learn, or perhaps glean, a satisfying word, glean, from that sound effect that there are those who recall a previous Lavrovian justification for his country's rampage in Ukraine when he demanded to know how the United Kingdom might react if the Republic of Ireland banned the English language. We learned that Lavrov is regrettably unbowed and indeed uncowed by the response to this, which noted that Lavrov was implicitly casting Russia as the imperialist aggressor, so there was that, and also suggested that with all due respect to an often unhappy history, the reaction of the UK now to such an edict by Ireland would probably be along the lines of, okay, bit weird, but whatever, and would certainly fall well short of rocketing Dublin, bombing Limerick and besieging Galway. For we learned that Lavrov had shifted his focus and was now demanding to know what France would do if Belgium forbade the speaking of French. Vous savez, contrairement à nos collègues occidentaux, nous ne courons pas après les effets de manche. Et nous ne cherchons pas... We don't know if that's the exact bit of the interview, but it's from the interview the exact bit is in, which is, frankly, as far as we can be bothered to research this nonsense. <laughs> Can we now get a clip of people speaking French, along perhaps with some jaunty accordion music? We learned, when we looked into it, that as of this broadcast, France had still not responded officially to the scenario Lavrov outlined, so we presumed on this occasion to speak for France, and accordingly have solicited from Monocle24's Gallic Indifference desk chief the following impersonation of the reaction of France to Belgium hypothetically banning the speaking of French. In keeping with the responsibilities attendant upon the role, Monocle24's Gallic Indifference desk chief is literally whoever can be bothered at a given moment. Anyway... Sticking with the theme of desperate shills for faded national grandeur, seeking to incite a certain spiteful nostalgia among the cohort of grouchy nostalgic xenophobes that constitutes their core voter base, we learned of the next front that the government of the United Kingdom wishes to open in its interminable and heart-stoppingly tedious culture war. So the government will publish a consultation, the essence of which will be, would people like to have the choice, if they're a market trader or Sainsbury's, to sell specifically in imperial measures. I don't think anyone's going to be compelled to do that if they don't want to. We thus learned from Marc Francois, inexplicable MP for Rayleigh and Wickford, of the latest benefit of Brexit. We furthermore learned that not only will British beer be poured in pint glasses, just like it always has been and without the Vegas prospect that anybody was going to stop it, but that those pint glasses would once again be embossed with an image of the crown, just like anybody who really wanted to was always at perfect liberty to do, and congratulations at this point to listeners who have spotted the thinly veiled insinuation that Brexit has been nothing so much as an ongoing massacre of straw men. Probably some sort of combine harvester sound mixed with screaming will get us over the line here. We have learned, therefore, or really, if we're honest, surmised, that the UK is maybe six months away from a push to abolish decimal currency and restore farthings, florins, shillings and guineas. Or, if Boris Johnson is really floundering by then, groats. Groats! 
You can't get the staff. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And my thanks to Andrew Muller for that. A brand new edition of What We Learned will air on The Globalist from 7am on Friday. Hope you can join me for that. My thanks uh, to all my guests, to Andrew Walker for joining me in the studio, to Sophie Grove and Gillian DeBias on the line from Paris, and to you for listening, because that's all we have time for today's edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer, Nora Hole. I'll be back tomorrow with Monocle Weekends, and I'll be bringing you some more great music in just a moment. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye, and thank you for listening. Listening.